Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey guys, welcome to And the Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, a.k.a. that hat I always wear, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. For a little bit of context, we just wanted you to know that a lot of these were recorded before quarantine. And as we know, a lot has changed in 2020. So again, please stay safe out there. And enjoy the new episodes of And the Writer Is. This podcast is brought to you by CSAC, an industry leader and innovator in music performance licensing. For over 80 years, CSAC has established strong relationships in the creative community by investing in the careers of its top tier affiliated songwriters and film and TV composers. To learn more about CSAC and its affiliated relationships with songwriters and composers, Visit csac.com forward slash origins to learn more. Again, visit csac.com forward slash origins. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's platinum songwriter artist appeared on just about everybody's one to watch list. In the last couple of years, he has already had two country radio number ones. This breakout star's journey has gone from living in a car to center stage at an amphitheater near you. His style bridges the gap between country, R&B, and pop, or better yet, he just has a style of his own. From the great state of Delaware, this father of two has reached the top of his profession by never quitting. And the writer is Jimmy Allen. Hello, hello. That was hello, the longest there. intro I think I've ever had. It was kind of like the Game of Thrones thing. Jimmy Allen, uh, father of dragons, uh, def- defender of the throne, <laughs> like all that stuff. If I could, you know, it's like when we do when we do this interview, this update in five years from now, and uh, we've had five more years of number one songs, that's going to be a really annoyingly long intro. Yeah. Uh, we'll just have to just keep doing these every few years. Got to do it, man. Got to do it. So um, let's start from the beginning. You know, we I don't know if we've ever had a guest from Delaware before. Never? I don't think so. I mean, I think we've had, you know, around 100 episodes. I don't think we've had a guest from Delaware. So First, I love it. So you've never had, like, Chuck Wicks on here or... Uh, Okay, cool. Well, then we're good. We're in there. I like that you just named one. Can you name three? Are there others you're like? Actually, so I can name from Delaware. We got me, Chuck, Chuck. Wicks. We got my boy Chad from King Calloway. Okay. Uh, you got Ziggy Marley. Oh. Um, and that's it. Now, sports, we got one. Elena Deladon. There you go. Yeah. There you we're go. Slowly, we're slowly on our way up. Yeah. That's a small state. Okay, so uh, let's, you know, uh, tell me about your childhood. Man, childhood was cool, man. Um, What's your family? I grew up in this town, Milton, Delaware, when I was there. Had 650 650 people when I was there. Um, And it was small town living, fishing, hunting. 
everybody going to church. Uh, <clears throat> my dad listened to nothing but country music. My mom just listened to Christian music. Um, but we listen to everything, like, you know, in our neighborhood, country, rock, Christian, R&B, hip-hop. Did um, they play music? No, nah, my mom sings. My dad, nah, he just, um, he was just, you know, small town, good old boy, man. Uh, just fished, hunt, played slow pitch softball, you know, did construction. Super did you, like, what got you into actually playing music versus well, liking it? Singing in church, like, so my mom had me and my sister in church all the time, and, you know, I was like, I'm here, so let me try to do something to help me stay awake. Pro, <laughs> I started playing drums. Uh, oh, nice. I started, I started playing drums first for a while, and then I started playing piano uh, for the choir and stuff, and uh, that was fun. And once I got to high school, I started playing trumpet. <clears throat> Um, and then just like start morphing into like musical theater and uh, kind of getting uh, comfortable, like being on stage and doing music. And What kind of musical theater were you doing? And I did a bunch of plays. Like I did Footloose. Um, uh, we did Newsies. No, not Newsies. West Side Story. South Pacific. Uh, what else we do? We did Hook. Um, the adult version of Peter Pan, pretty much. Uh I mean, that's a crazy amount going from, you know, playing drums in a church, which I think if you were to look at at the people who've been most successful on, on our podcast, I think half of them played in church. Yeah. What is it? Is it having to perform in front of people who are passionate? Is it like, what is that? feeling thing because i feel like in church especially in black churches it's not about the notes it's not about reading notes it's not about none of that it's a, a feeling you know so at a young age you're pretty much taught to play what feels right not what looks right on paper because a lot of times what's right for the song isn't always what's right as far as like what should come next uh, structure wise depending on this music theory or that music theory you know it taught me at a young age music at the end of the day is about what feels good you know, yeah. so you learn quick, like being a drummer, you play with a piano player long enough or a B3 organ guy or a bass player long enough, you can feel a breakdown about to happen. So say you're grooving, you can feel that. Like you can, you feel it. Like you get, you get to the point where you're locking eyes and then you can just start closing your eyes and you can feel what the music wants you to do. And it starts to feel like everybody's on that same wave of of of, of vibration and in in just the musical balance of everything kind of happening in that room. So for me, I channel that a lot. Uh huh. You know, even now when writing songs, because to me, it's not about what should I put here, what's grammatically correct, or you know, I shouldn't say this word because I've said it already. Eh, how does it feel? You know, because at the end of the day, the, the people that are listening to music aren't buying your songs or listening to songs or not listening to songs because you've used a word twice, you right. know, or the second verse melody doesn't match the first verse melody. Who cares? Like, that's just how my mentality is. Like, what feels good for the song for the moment? Sure. And playing, growing up playing in church has kind of helped me a lot with that. Yeah, totally. Did, did it make you want to write... Were you writing music while you were in church? Did you, were you starting to write yeah. you know, music for Sundays? Yeah, I wrote, you know, a couple songs for like required to church and a couple groups at the church. And my older cousin, Charles Gibbs, man, he he was actually a guy like there's a couple groups in our church that actually sung nothing but original music that Charles wrote. Uh, but Charles died in 2006 and he was like 33 when he died, super young. Um, so he wrote a lot of songs with the choir song and stuff like that. So that kind of got me into it. So I wrote a few songs for the choirs at church and <clears throat> then that just, you know, uh, transitioned from there to just writing songs kind of for myself outside. So, you know, when I was a kid, you know, my dad, you know, his dream was for me to become a country music artist. Like he wanted me in the hat button up shirt tucked in the belt buckle all of it i was like yeah that's not my thing that's not what i'm gonna do 
And this is me, like 15. And, you know, I, I joined a band. I'm an emo band, you know. Uh, we're practicing and rehearsing in friends' garages. We had a band called Midweek Crisis. Uh, we thought we were awesome, but we stunk. We were pretty bad. <laughs> but we, we did it for a while. and <clears throat> uh, Midweek Crisis is a fun name. Yeah, man. Did you guys ever release music? No. <laughs> like, you never... We never even, oh, you know how we recorded? We're like 14, 15. We're like yeah. 15. So how we used to record, we would have a karaoke machine, right? And yeah. record like guitars and stuff, like record the whole band playing on the guitars, uh, guitars, drums, whatever. Then we'd take a tape, cassette tape, and put in the other one and hit and play that while recording the other one and us playing. And I'd sing over top of that. It was bad, bro. Do you, see, do you remember what the first song was that you wrote? Yes, man. What how, does it, how does it go? Uh, it was something like, uh, man, was it was like, do you want to be my forever, ever, ever, ever? Do you want to be my forever? Because forever don't feel like forever without you. It was bad. <laughs> What what's the oldest song that you've actually released? Like, did you have you ever gone back to those songs and been like, no, that's actually a good idea, and I kind of want to reuse anything? Hell no, it's he- hell no, no, bro. Like the only stuff I thought about releasing is some of my Color of London stuff, like okay. two thousand and that's the LA band that we haven't gotten to yet. Yeah, and that was like two thousand. When you were in high school, did did everyone know that you were writing music? Um, some people did. Yeah. Not really a lot. I I was so deep into everything from, you know, band to sports to basketball, uh, soccer, musical theater. Like I was in a bunch of stuff, ROTC. Um, I kind of like music, writing songs is kind of like the thing I did kind of like by myself for a while. It was kind of like yeah. a little secret project or whatever. Did you write music for anybody? Not back then, no. Like, no. I'm not saying like for other people to cut. I'm just saying like, were you writing them for like, would you write them about your classmates or would you write them about things that you were going through? Not really. Like I had one song that I wrote and I told like four girls I wrote it about them. I was like, I was a freshman in high school. Like, I had one song, bro. Like I had one song I wrote that I played really well. And I sung it half decent. And I just told a bunch of girls that like four or five of them that wrote this about you, you inspired me, you know, what freshmen and high school boys do. Yeah, exactly. Um, What, what got you out of Delaware and why did you choose to not go through musical theater or why did you choose to not go through something? You know, what was it? What did you go to school afterwards? Yeah, I went to college. Where'd you go? Um, I went to Delaware State for so a couple stayed, years. You stayed near home. <clears throat> yeah. And then I I got accepted to go to AMDA, uh, American Musical Dramatic Academy. Uh-huh. Um, I got accepted there in 2006. And I was torn between going there or coming to Nashville. And I just chose to come to Nashville. When you went to Nashville, <clears throat> were you going? It was you had to make some sort of choice at that point of I'm either going to pursue musical theater or I'm going to pursue music, right? Yeah, like, by that time, day of of making that. There's some day that you had to make that choice. Yeah, I made that choice in like 2000, like four, 2005. Uh, senior year of high school, going into co- freshman year of college, I had made the choice that, <clears throat> you know, uh, it was what I wanted to do was be an artist. And what I wanted to do was, I remember uh, before my dad died, he had told me, <clears throat> I want you to be a country artist, but you need to study different types of music and actually sing them. So there was a while there. I took a year and done did nothing but gospel music. Then I took a year and did nothing but R and B. Then I took a year uh, and did nothing but classic country. 
you know, then I did like CCM worship for a while. And what it really, what it helped me a lot with is just incorporating different elements from different genres of music into what I do now, you know? Um, so I decided in like 04 that the artist thing is really what I was going to chase and not the musical theater because I was bouncing <clears throat> back and forth. One day I want to do this, one day I want to do that, one day I want to do this. Um, and it really just hit me. I was like, well, Nashville's what I want to do because I wanted to do country music, but it was my style of country like I do now, you know, but in 2007, <clears throat> country music was still pretty traditional, you know, like there was no FGL, you know, there was, there, there was no Dan and Shay. Uh, Darius didn't even come over until like 2008, his first project was put out. So, you know, I was the first black guy kind of really on the scene other than uh, Cowboy Troy pretty much since uh, Charlie Pride. You know, as far as like, there's a couple guys in between. Uh, like, what was the doctor's name? I forgot. Uh, he had a, uh, there was a Spanish guy that did country for a while. Uh, it was Tritty. Uh, I don't remember. But did did you feel like you were getting welcomed into country at that time being like you know without the those other artists or were you feeling at that point like um you know what what is it like at that point before you were saying pop music really making the influence the way it currently is and without you know people like Darius who you know had had a fan base coming into it what was it like to be in Nashville as a black man who's trying to make music. It wasn't easy, bro. Like, uh, I remember at first came in town, you know, I've always done the cowboy boots with jeans and a, and a hat. That was like my thing. And I remember the first place I played in town was uh, Fiddling Steel in Printer's Alley. Uh, the first place I played. And I remember I was walking on stage some dude was like, oh, man, bro, I ain't know it was hip-hop night tonight, bro. You about to rap? I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, yeah man. <laughs> it's like, then I started singing. He was like, oh, okay. And then I went and was playing at, it was called Calac Ranch at the time, but now it's uh, Al Dean's Bar. A guy I know named Joe Fields. His daughter used to sing. We had the same producer, Chelsea. Uh, Joe Fields uh, was one of the owners there. I think he still is. Uh, but it was back when it was called Calac Ranch and played there a bunch. And Joe's cool, always super supportive um, and kind of everything I did, you know, would let me play there whenever I wanted. And, you know, for a while he was trying to help get me and, you know, to the industry. Uh, but, you know, at that time, Nashville wasn't really, I wouldn't say ready just I don't think they really quite knew how to accept the here I'm a black guy from Delaware that is not only doing country but it's not traditional country you know what I mean like so that was kind of the struggle for a while so you know I had this producer and I went through the whole had this producer that had this investor and then the producer had a partner that was pretty much taking all the money that the investor was giving to the producer for me and just spending it. Uh, you know, I think I worked with them for like thinking like a year and a half, two years, we recorded professionally like two songs because all the money was getting wiped out. And, uh, uh, but then he was telling, you know, the partner was telling the guy that I was about to go on tour with Keith Urban. So the guy calls me and was like, Hey man, I heard you're about to go on tour with Keith Urban. I was like, I am. He was like, yeah, that's what such and such just told me uh, that you signed a deal and you're going on tour with Keith Urban. I was like, well, that's a lie, bro. I'm chilling. And then I found out that dude was giving him uh, the producer's partner money to give me because they offered me a pub deal. And he was like, Jimmy, so how's everything going? Have you been getting the checks? Like, what checks? He said, well, I've been sending them three grand a month for you for the last four or five months. I was like, well... I'm working at this gym right now 
and I'm served waiting tables. I haven't gotten anything. So the dude was like taking all that money too. Like it was crazy, man. And, and then I, um, <clears throat> kind of got to the point where I just kind of got like burned out, you know, nothing was really happening on the music front. Yeah. Why not? Why not quit? I mean, to be honest, like, like this is like a make or break moment. I feel like for a lot of artists where, you know, they were, you know, where it's like the industry is not assuming that you didn't have nepotism, you know, yeah. like this, this industry is not always welcome to people. And then also to be a black guy doing country music, you're already going against the grain. What prevented you from after somebody's now kind of screwing you on this? Why didn't you just say, like, I, I don't know, musical theater would have looked better. <laughs> like, why didn't you know? Why didn't you, you know, stop? I, when I was a kid, my grandma told me, never have a backup plan because it's impossible to put 100% in two different things. And she said, if you work, hard enough, long enough, eventually you will get an opportunity. And, you know, coming against the no's and the don't do this and don't try that. Um, I was really like, not sure what to do, especially in like 2007, but I remember One Republic put out their Dreaming Out Loud record in 07. And when I tell you I am a huge One Republic fan, bro, like huge as far as their approach to music, the lyrics, but as well as the production. Like that title, Dreaming Out Loud, for me, hit me. Not sure what it did for everybody else that came out, but I was really on the fence of do I quit or do I keep going? And I was like, I got to do it. And then I was struggling again. I remember the next record came out. Wasn't sure if it was 08 or 09, the Waking Up record. And I was like, just the title alone was like, you know what? This is me. I feel like I'm really waking up to who I am. It might take a while. Then I started digging into like Tedder's story and like everything he went through and his Nashville journey. And I met a producer that knew him when Tedder was living on his couch <laughs> or whatever. Uh, lived on his couch for a couple nights, whatever. Not sure how long. And then just hearing those stories, I was like, man, if Ryan Tedder, one of the most talented people ever walked the face of this earth, got told no and went through this, I need to get my ass in gear and keep going. And that's what I did, man. I was like, people, I said, I see the vision. Like, I, I see it crystal clear. And at times it was frustrating trying to explain it to other people when they didn't see it. But I, I got discouraged sometimes, but just quitting was never an option. You know, from the time oh. I had to work three jobs to four jobs. Like there was a time where I would write songs from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And then I had to work at Bonefish Grill from 4 p.m. to 10, then Walmart overnight stock from 10 th from 11.30 till six in the morning. And I did that um, five days a week for about a year and a half. But how do people, How you know, a lot of people ask me how they can do that and also have a music career. Like that's what, that's incredible to do all that work. Where in that time are you doing things like being a musician? Yeah, yeah so I would so I would write those songs from nine a.m. to three. Like I would, I would spend that time. Then days I had off, I would go to writers' rounds in Nashville. Yeah, and just go up to songwriters afterwards. Like at the listening room at the Bluebird Cafe, um, I would just introduce myself to people and write with whoever would write with me. And then I'd sleep, then go to work. Then the next day I'd schedule those rights and I'd write with those people. And I was writing with everybody from people that had publishing deals to people that didn't. Anybody just wanted to get in the room, you know? And the crazy thing is some of the guys I was writing with before, I still write with them now. Um, I, I, I had, uh, so that was the country thing. It was trying, wasn't working, wasn't working. I formed a band. Um, I met these guys. Uh, we started a band called Mercury Lane, and we switched the name to Color of London. And we were doing the same exact music I do now. We were just doing it in 07 and 08. And uh, it was kind of like walking that edge between um, country, pop, and R&B. And we were playing these shows, and the you know, country label was like, nah, 
Uh, I had one light bulb. One guy just told me, well, I'm not sure how about how the country music world would feel about, you know, your people really doing. I was like, and he was like, well, you, you are really cool for a black guy. And I was like, is that man is just racist as hell? Like, <laughs> unbelievable. I was like, dude. So then I had met this guy named Giovanni. I know for a while, Giovanni Ferrosi. He was CEO of this company called Alex Anani out of Rhode Island that makes those bracelets and stuff. So he brought my band in to start doing the music for their commercials. So we started playing all these shows all over the place at different stores and they would buy us on festivals and we played Summerfest. And this was like in 2010-ish, 2000, like, no, like 2011, it was after Idol, like 2012. And uh, just started meeting a bunch of people. And then I met Ricky, uh, Kanye's cousin that works with him at Good Music. And uh, those were one of the labels that we were that we were talking to and stuff like that. It was just just the timing of everything going on and what Ye was working on. Uh, the deal never really like panned out, but me and Ricky stayed in contact and stuff like that. And in the midst of that, we had you know my drummer decided to do something else because he wanted to just be a higher gun. I respect that. And mm-hmm. uh, the bass player was busy with a bunch of different stuff, and then it went from four people to two. Um, oh, how came. much? Do you still keep in touch with all those guys? Oh yeah. Do they uh, are they angry at the fact that they didn't um, stay in a band with you? Nah, man. I I, I think things run their course. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, and, and Isaac really didn't want to travel like that. And uh, uh, but me, Isaac, we're still friends. Me and Nate still friends. Nate, I'm actually planning on bringing out next year as our fourth band member, like a, a utility guy. Uh, to play keys, guitar. Because over the years, Nate, when we were in the band, I was the motivated one, and Nate was the organizer. And I was always late for everything because I was so focused on the art side. I didn't care about the business. So Nate cared about the business. But Nate really never really had the motivation for the creative side. But now we flipped. He's got the creative side and the motivation. So he taught himself to play banjo, dobro, keys, sings better. So... We're so my plan is next year to bring him out as uh the fourth player to play, you know, play utility stuff. So we stayed in contact. And Isaac actually drove when I first started. Uh, he actually drove me and my van, me and my band in a sprinter for 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 a couple shows. So he's like the head national rep for Bandigo, that oh, yeah. band and stuff. Yeah. yeah, so so we 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 stay in contact. And uh, I went to LA for a little bit and tried that circuit, but it just didn't feel like me. Like I got so frustrated, you know, I LA didn't feel like you or the band didn't feel like you. The, I mean, LA, cause the band was doing similar music. And yeah. LA didn't feel like me. I, I felt like, because I was in that bubble where I was too country for pop, but I was too pop for country. You know, it was a weird, it was a weird time for about six years. And Who did, never, you, did you live with people out in LA? Like yeah, I roommates and stuff. I have my, I live, so my uncle lives in uh, Encino. And I live with okay. him. Yeah. And I, is I he never, in music or are you just you're just con. Was he in music or are you just con? Nah, he's he worked at USC. Now he works for UCLA. He's like in dean of admissions and all that cool stuff. Fight on. No HR. He's head of HR at UCLA. Yeah. Um, I and I just. What I wanted to do, I love L.A. Like, I go to L.A. anytime I get a chance. Like, I love L.A. But musically, what I needed to do was in Nashville, no matter how many times I kept bumping. Because I had a couple label offers from different labels in L.A. I just kept turning them down because it just didn't feel right. You know, the signing bonus was great. I was like, whoo, I need to take this. But always trust my gut. And my gut was just like, man, this ain't right. This ain't for you. So I remember... My dad was like, just go back to Nashville, grab your guitar, and just write what you want to write. And when I started doing that, I started just playing different rounds anywhere I could. I remember I, 2016, I played a writer's round at Puckett's Grocery Store in Franklin. Franklin, Tennessee. It's a, um, it's a music venue, a grocery store, and a restaurant. <laughs> and I played it. 
And I played it because I went to the gym where I used to work. There's a kid named Mike Giangreco who now works for Big Loud, the publishing department. He was in Belmont at the time. He said, hey, I got a producer you should meet. And I never met the producer, but the producer called me and said, hey, I had a cancellation. Do you want to fill in? So I called out all three of my jobs. I was like, all right, I'll at least make 200 bucks to get to play some songs and I get a free meal. I'm in. And I play and he had another cancellation. So he filled it in with a guy named Ash Bowers. And Ash was a writer at the time. He's been an artist signed to Broken Bow. Came up to me afterwards and was like, hey, um, what do you got going on? You got a pub deal? Do you want one? I said, no, I don't. <laughs> I'm trying to get a pub deal. He said, well, I'll introduce you to anybody you want. I said, well, what are you doing these days? He was like, well, I got a small publishing company. Um, we got like two writers. I said, well, well, let's talk. See what you got going on. So Ash offered me a pub deal like pretty much that next week. Uh. Like, and it was a good pub deal too. I could quit all my jobs <laughs> and just focused on on songwriting. And I wrote with, the day I signed my deal, I went across the street to Major Bob and I wrote with J.P. Williams and Josh London. It was so funny, we walk in the room, J.P.'s blonde, Josh is redneck, and I'm this black dude. <laughs> I remember I first walked in, I said, hey, J.P., I don't know if they told you I'm black, so keep the black jokes to a minimum, bro. I don't know if they told you. <laughs> exactly. So we wrote two songs that day, and I ended up writing my... And they were writers at the time that really haven't had any, any cuts or anything. And I wrote my single Best Shot with those guys. Crazy. Yeah, and we just kept writing. I wrote another song on my record, Like You Do. But the song Ash heard that made him want to sign me was a song I wrote uh, uh, called uh, called Back of Your Mind. That was on my Mercury Lane record. I had that song like two years before I got my record deal, a year before I got my pub deal. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This podcast is brought to you by CSAC, an industry leader and innovator in music performance licensing. For over 80 years, CSAC has established strong relationships in the entire community by investing in the careers of its top-tier affiliated songwriters, film, and TV composers. CSAC uses a selective and partnership approach with its affiliates, maintaining a small base, which enables them to deliver a high level of responsiveness and service. CSAC is also proud of its long history serving music users throughout the country and now represents over 1 million songs across all genres of music, as well as music from hit movies, television shows, and sporting events. CSAC is more than just a PRO and has expanded its business into additional rights categories and markets. They are also building a global licensing platform through a joint venture, Mint Digital Services. To learn more about CSAC and its relationships with affiliated songwriters and composers, visit csac.com forward slash origins. (laughs) 
at this point, did you know the difference between, you know, you've been in bands, you had released, you know, you've been writing since you were 14. Did you know that that was a good song? Oh, yeah, I could tell the difference. Like, <laughs> was it working with, was it working with professional writers? And also, were you co-writing the songs in your previous things? Was that your first experience co-writing? I mean, what was it about that session? They were like, oh, you sign a publishing deal, you then go in and co-write with people, and then magic happens. You know, is that what happened? It was the co-writing, but also I feel like every now and again, you get a guy that's young that's really good at songwriting. I'm noticing men, the, the older we get, the better we are. You know, we, we live a little bit. You know, we, we learn to, through our, our mistakes and our triumphs in life, into a song. Um, uh, and for me, I was always a hard critic on myself anyway. But that was one of the first times. I remember when I wrote Back in Your Mind, before I got my deal, I was like, man, this song is actually pretty good. <laughs> like, and I was always honest that, is it a good song or is it not? I don't care if I wrote it or not. You know, you had to be. And I would honestly... A lot of times compare my music to Tedder stuff, to Keith Urban stuff, uh, to uh, this Christian band called the Newsboys. Uh, compare myself to them. And at the same time, I was I was real close friends with Joel and Luke from the Christian band for King and Country. Yeah. And we were kind of here for a while. Um, like I was, you know, leading worship with them at churches. And <clears throat> remember they got their deal. They signed with Word, this imprint called squint under word and the auto price that was nr there the plan was they were going to sign me after them because they were going to do a, a a mainstream deal and uh they ended up just i think just staying and switched over to word and did the christian thing and there i saw their career kind of just really start to take off and for me to where it would discourage some people for me kind of you know, when I didn't sign with Squint because they decided to close it, I didn't really get discouraged. It was just proof that if you work hard and keep going, like you'll have your opportunity. For me, that was encouragement, you know. So I just kept going, just kept writing and listening to their songs. And, you know, One Republic. Those, different, those are so, It's you know, there's a big difference between, there's still a difference between Nashville songs and the songs you write in Nashville and the songs you write in L.A., Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously, you know, Tedder's written all over the place for everybody. So it's a, you know, that's a, a unique example. But what do you think is the difference between music that you write in Nashville versus music that's written in L.A.? Why is it that your music works so well in Nashville in comparison to L.A.? I feel like I'm a emotional person and I look for depth in times when I shouldn't. And I felt like a lot of my rights in LA was focused on the melody and what sounds good now, not what's going to sound good 10, 20 years from now, but just right now. And in Nashville, I felt like I was challenged to push to make the song great now and years later. Um, and then recently, my recent LA trip starting to feel a lot like Nashville right now. Yeah, to where it's cool to bring that approach and actually rewrite a song and challenge it and make the song as good as it the song can be, you know. Um, but for me, Nashville was what I needed. It, I felt like it was more structure, a little bit more disciplined. Um, and then I started to see the difference in my songwriting and just the approach. To songwriting and challenging myself to when I want to reuse a phrase or reuse a word, nothing's wrong with that. I still do it now, but make sure I exhaust all options. Is there, a, can I beat that line? You know, by instead of taking a cop out and repeating it just because I want to do it and it's easy, if you repeat the line, do it because it, it feels good in the song and it feels right, not because I'm too lazy to write another line. Yeah, make it purposeful. It's yeah. actually, that's a, even the Swedes. You know, they talk about pop music. They, they're for people who are really repetitive with stuff. They are very conscious about when they repeat things. It has to be by design. And I think a lot of times people think if you just repeat the word enough, then that's what that's the title. 
but yeah. that's really lazy. So that just means you didn't really write the chorus well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, how long did it take from writing Best Shot till it came out? And you know that the reason why I'm asking that is because there's a huge journey for you from that session mm-hmm. of all of a sudden people saying, you know, this guy's a top prospect and and is on all the top to watch lists and all that stuff. How is it these people started hearing it? What is the bubbling up process going from you've now been around the industry in multiple cities, you, you know, you've lived in Nashville and LA, you've heard it all before. You know, why did you, why this time? Why did it work this time? So I wrote Best Shot in 2016. Signed my record deal in 2017. We went to radio with Best Shot in 2018, and it went number one in November 2018. Um, so crazy. It was a journey because Best Shot wasn't even really the focus single at the time. Um, I remember when I wrote the song, we did a demo of it, but it was faster, like <laughs> seven, eight BPMs faster. And... Uh, I remember I was at Bluebird Cafe and I played it acoustic and I slowed it down. Uh-huh. And Ash was like, what song was that? I said, dude, it's Best Shot. I, I turned it in. He said, no, you ain't send me that song. I said, yeah, I did. I just did it different. He said, well, that's how we need to do it. So we went to the studio and like slowed it down and kind of focused on the lyric and the vocal, you know, more than uh, the production. And I don't know, for some reason I started playing it, uh, writers rounds different shows and it seemed to connect with people um wasn't quite sure exactly what it was it just felt right so remember the label was choosing between two different singles to go with and the head of my uh radio promo team at sony creek under broken bow byron kennedy was like man i think best shots the song and i still wasn't convinced i was like man like my live show is so high energy i'm jumping off stuff i do flips and all this crazy stuff I'm not trying to leave with a ballad, bro. And it was like, just trust me. So I remember Best Shot went to radio, sat at 41 for 12 weeks. Didn't move. Yeah. I was like, God, this is it. I remember Byron said he told our radio team, he said, listen, this song dies here. I'm buying all y'all jerseys with 41 on it. The next thing you know, uh, iHeart got behind it really heavy. Cumulus got behind it. Uh, Beasley got behind it. Um, uh, you know, and it went from 41 to next thing you know, it was 30. Then it jumped from 30 to 20. Then it jumped from 20 to 15. Then it jumped from like 15 to like nine, I think. And then it just was moving. Then it went to five and jumped from five to one and stayed there for like three, uh, two weeks in a row on Media Base and Billboard. And it fell to number two on Billboard. Then went back to number one. I was like, "Did you get like? Was it? Is it scary? That's a weird question. But is it scary watching it? Like, because there's a, there's like a different pressure and there's excitement and there's all these things. But mm-hmm. it was. Like, it, is it vulnerable? It is vulnerable, man. But my problem is, I've struggled and worked so hard for so long, I find joy in the struggle, you know, to when I got more excited struggling and fighting for the song than I did when it went to number one. When it went to number one, I was happy. I celebrated by going home to my apartment and playing PlayStation. (laughs) And I was like, cool, what's next? I was ready to jump back into something else because I was thankful for the number one, but I'm so addicted to the fight, you know? And uh, my mom's been really helping me a lot with, trying to just slow down and, and and take in the victory, you know, because she said, this could be the only number one you get. Don't rush past that moment and realizing you achieve something that a lot of people don't, you know? Um, remember Ash was telling me, he said, look, I had a record deal. I had a single, never had number one. And then I start to think about all these artists that have had singles on radios and top tens and some stop at number two. Don't even get the one. And from that moment on, I, I I didn't take a moment for granted. Again, I'm still always rushing past the <laughs> the success moment and ready. It's like rushing past the trophy ceremony, ready to get to the next season. 
back to the struggle, yeah. back to the fight. Cause I feel like that's, that's, that's the blessing of having, you know, having failed before. Mm-hmm. I think a lot like, of people it doesn't scare me. Like yeah. I love it. I, I love the fight. I love the grind. I love when people tell me something can't be done. I love when they tell me that's impossible. Yeah. I remember there was a guy that worked for a label said, man, you're a black dude from a country town in Delaware that people don't even know exist. And you're trying to do country. He said, there's no way you're going to get a record deal. If you do, they're not going to put a single out. And if you put it out, it's never going to go to number one because I'm not sure how the country fan base will feel about you. And it was the exact opposite, man. It was like the country music fan base was ready for it. But a lot of times it's the people that work for labels sometimes that hold up the process, you know, because they're like, well, why do, how do we get more, you know, black artists on country radio? Well, country radio and country rec labels are like this. So if you don't really have a major label deal, it's really hard to get a song like country radio taken seriously. And once labels start to sign more black artists and take them seriously, then radio comes on and then fan base comes on and, uh, I had so many people when I was on radio tour and playing shows like, man, you know, it's good to see you doing this. What took so long? So, I don't know. Timing. Now, I, I'm definitely glad things are working out now than when I was 25. Because at 25, I wasn't ready. I thought I was. But I wasn't. Like, I didn't get my record deals. I was 32. And um, I feel like I've not only grown as a person, as a man, but also as an artist and a songwriter and a creator to where I really know now what I want to say, what I want my songs to sound like, what I want the production to sound like. Uh, kind of really, I really have a grasp on who I am uh, kind of as an artist. Uh, I remember somebody asked me, well, if you can describe your music, naming other artists, who would it be? I said, I would say my song is like, my sound is kind of like a country lyric with pop rock production and pop and R&B melodies. So I said, if you mixed Keith Urban with Usher, 8701 Confessions Usher, One Republic and Matchbox 20, you get the Jimmy Allen sound sort of thing. Because there's so many different artists that uh, I grew up listening to that I listened to as an adult that I love what they do. And I've over the years kind of just taken pieces, which everybody does, you know, take pieces that I love that fits with who I am and kind of what I want to say. I feel like when we were talking about country music, which has started like, you know, only a couple people of color get the opportunity to perform on country radio. And do you feel like, are you meeting a lot of aspiring musicians who want to get in that haven't had the door open for them yet? Oh, yeah. A lot, man. Um, There's still, you know, black country artists that are signed a major label that really hasn't had an opportunity. Like one of my favorite singers is Mickey Guyton. Uh, Yeah, I love her new single. She's so dope, man. Um, For some reason, I don't know what it is. And it sucks because, one, you know, you're fighting a battle of just females on country radio, and she's black on top of it. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? So that's like. You can sing like Whitney, like if people actually realize. She could sing, um, bro. Yeah, she's incredible. She's one of, in my opinion, she's the best female singer in Nashville, bro. And and that's my opinion. You know, I, I put her up there with the great female vocalists of. I put her up there with Carrie. I put her up there with anybody who thinks that whoever the best female vocalists are, as far as vocals concerned, I put Mickey up there right with them. Yeah. She's freaking incredible. Um, but it, it's, it's crazy because I, when we're fighting for best shot. People ask me, well, do you want to quit? You know, there's so many obstacles you have to fight. I said, well, Life always has obstacles you have to overcome. They're there. There's nothing you can do about it. But the effort I put into beating those battles is on me. You know, there's, you know, you know, people, there's been times where I'll see somebody come to town. One of my, one of my buddies, uh, this white guy came to town the same time I did. He got a record deal, six months. 
but he pissed it away. Like he didn't go to he didn't go to his label meetings, didn't go to radio interviews, didn't you know? And it was I wasn't jealous of his opportunity. I was upset he wasted it because I said, man, you have so many artists out here that would kill for that opportunity. They're working their butt off, and you just there are a lot of writers who listen to this podcast and um i've seen that story happen more often than the other where they get the publishing deal and they're angry at their publisher for not doing something or whatever it is and it's like you know are they writing a song every day are they even if they're not getting in session still write songs every day like the opportunity of being signed to a publisher to a uh, a record deal in any of these major cities is it's really the ticket and you can, you kind of make, make what you can with it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I, man. And I, I feel like the best thing for me that I did was remove the safety net. Like my buddy that came and got a record deal. He also comes from a family where his dad is worth like $90 million. So it was like, he's like, eh, I can do this. I can go home and work for my dad. I feel like when you don't have a safety net, a safety net, you have no option but to succeed. Like you're holding on to that cliff. It's like free solo climbing a mountain with no, you know, there's yeah. no man. If you fall, you're done. It's over. And for me, that applied pressure is what I'm thankful for. Like it doesn't, I'm not afraid to put out a song and it not work. I'm not afraid to struggle. I'm not afraid to be broke. I've been broke my whole life, you know? So for me, it's literally comes down to the music and I love, and I want to make sure that I always put out stuff and promote music that I put out that I love. Well, you know, you, you had, you know, you, you've had now, uh, obviously make me want to is also a big record. And there's one thing where you get a big record and there's another thing when you follow it up. So you're like, I'm not a fluke, mm-hmm. you know? Um, the next record that, you know, your most recent single, you are, Noah Cyrus is on it. Shout out to Noah. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, like, even that's a risk. It's like, you're, I like that you're still pushing boundaries and you're not stopping with that. Um, why the decision to bring an out sort of, I guess the Cyrus family have some pretty country roots. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. uh, it's slightly different than just like a random pop star, you know? But what was the connection with Noah and why bring on Noah to be a feature? So I heard the song. song was sent over because my manager, Ash, also manages artist Matt Stell, who signed to records, uh, the same label that Noah's on. Um, and I heard the song. Uh, they said they were looking for it as a a duet with Noah. And they sent it to me. I recorded it. Um, they liked it. And then the label's like, yo, why don't we push this as a single? And I was like, I'm in. And for me, I, I like pushing boundaries. I like challenges, man. And that's what that's what fuels me. You know, there's a lot of times where I'll, even when there's not any friction, I'll create friction in my head to motivate me to work even harder, uh, create some sort of intern battle, internal battle I need to uh, kind of overcome. And, Michael Jordan, man. Yeah, dude, I, I, man, Jordan, Kobe, and Russell Westbrook, my three favorite basketball players of all time. Yeah. They're like the alpha males of, of, of basketball, man, to where they thrive in obstacles, you know? And for me with music, it's the same thing. It's like, I love it. People said it can't be done. And that just fuels me to, you know, want to do it even more. Like we've even had stations now say, well, I don't know. I want to play it because Noah Cyrus is on it and she's a pop artist. I'm like, well, we've had Justin Bieber, BB Rex, my homeboy Nelly on country radio. And now we have a problem with Noah Cyrus, whose dad is Billy Ray Cyrus. And Noah, to me, yeah, she's a pop artist, but if you listen to Noah's music, especially like July and stuff, it's pop music, but it has substance, man. It has depth. You know what yeah. I mean? So she, I don't look at Noah like a regular pop artist. Like there's her music I can listen to 10 years from now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like 
So that's a battle we're fighting now and uh, hopefully we'll overcome it, but I'm going to keep pushing it until we do. And, you know, I, I tend to lean on the music listeners, man, because the response to the song has been great, you know, over a million and a half streams a week uh, on the song. And it's, it's, it's doing well. And then uh, my radio team <laughs> had a talk with uh, one station and they was like, well, I don't know if I want to play this song. They were like, the song is streaming number two country song in your region. It's out streaming the top 20 records you're playing right now. So your listeners are telling you they want to hear it, but you don't want to play it. So that's the, that's the one thing that's frustrating sometimes with radio. But again, you know, you, you stay persistent, um, keep fighting for it. And, and, and hopefully you'll get that opportunity to, to play. Cause the same thing I'm a best shot. Like people wasn't sure. Like my first single, it's a ballad. I'm a new artist, black guy on top of that. But once they played it and the song started testing, it was like, you know, the number one testing song for weeks amongst all age groups and all different gender, you know, between men and females, number one males, you know, 16 to 25 and then males 35 to 45 and same with females. Um, so. Um, Do you follow charts a lot? Mm-mm. Uh, that would frustrate the heck out of me, bro. Yeah, I mean, you know, that'll be your I know some artists that do it. Some that artists chip on your shoulder, man. You want that chip on your shoulder every week. Just start looking at charts. That'll get your blood flowing for sure. Yeah, that'll really get your blood flowing, man. <laughs> but well, like, let's put it at, uh, I know we're sort of running low on time, so I just want to uh, go to the next segment if, if you're cool with it. Um, this one is our five for five. I'm going to just name five things, and I just want you to Tell me what's uh, first thing that comes off the top of your head. All right. So let's start with Ash, your manager. Trustworthy. Let's go with Alexis, your fiance. Man, God, rock. Let's go with your kids. Motivation, inspiration. Let's go with Ryan Tedder. Man, inspiration, man, like a musical god. <laughs> well, I he he texted me because I sent him the Zoom link while we were on this, and he texted me to just say "What up" and "Love you back, bro." Nice. So, that's a little note from Ryan Tedder. Nice. Um, I mean. I'm going to just throw in a couple more because uh, you mentioned your mom, your grandmother, and your dad. Yeah. And I just would like you to mention something about each. Uh, my mom, man, she's been, you know, the, the, the musical uh, background, musical backbone. I mean, um, she has always supported me, you know, uh, never once said you have to go to college, you have to do this. You know, she's been the person that's always supported me uh, musically. Uh, my grandma, man, she was awesome. Like every show, my grandma, before she died, she's always wear this purple scarf. And I, I wear that in my pocket at every show. But when I uh, when I used to run in the crowds, I'm not running in the crowds right now, I tie it on my belt loop. So I wear that every show and I got a name on my guitar strap. Uh, my, she died in 2014. Uh, my dad died last year, in September 2019. He was... Uh, he was the guy that put me in the country music. Like that's all he listened to, bro. Like that's it. Like his favorite country artist was Aaron Tippin. He loved, you know, Montgomery Gentry. So before he died, I got to introduce him to Aaron and T-Roy from Montgomery Gentry. Uh, and then he was able to, to be alive when Best Shot was number one. So I got him a plaque made. He was able to see a couple sold out shows I played. I mean, we played one show. We sold 2,500 tickets in 13 minutes and he was able to be there and he was like wow like you did now he still wanted me to like i wear my belt buckle sometimes and my boots but he, he was like man when you gonna put the cowboy hat on jim i was like yeah i don't know dad i don't know but i did this photo shoot recently and i had a cowboy hat on that um yeah man they were all supportive man like they all taught me so many different things like i quote my dad and my grandma a lot i like to say i, I like to quote dead people <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> but I quote my dad a lot. He used to always say, 
um, you know, accept every opportunity, always make yourself available. And that's what I did by going to Puckett's and, and being able to get the pub deal. And my grandma's advice of, you know, never have a backup plan, you know, because you can't put hundred percent in two different things. I remember in middle school, I got in trouble. My teacher was like, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? So I'm going to be a singer. She was like, well, what's your backup plan? I said, I don't have a backup plan. I said, what, what did you want to do? I said, I wanted to be a school teacher. I said, did you have a backup plan? So now I didn't need one as a school teacher. I said, well, you didn't. No guarantee you were going to get hired. She's like, well, do you, are you trying to get flipped with me? I said, no, I'm not trying to get smart. I'm just making a point. Like, how are you going to come in my career, but I can't come in yours? She said, go to the principal's office. <laughs> so I went to the principal's office. <laughs> and he was like, well, what happened? I told him what happened. He said, man, go back to class. I went back to class. And I remember I, uh, I had my first show in Delaware. I sold out a show and I gave her t- tickets. And, uh, and I told her, I said, listen, as a teacher, you're supposed to educate and inspire. So you should never shoot down somebody's dream because not everybody is strong enough to fight through your negativity to reach where they're supposed to go. And I said, I could have let you tell me I need a backup plan and focus on my backup plan and not be doing what I love for a living. So no matter what a child's career dream is, supposed to nurture that. You know what I mean? And if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't happen, that's fine. But your job as an educator is to inspire and educate. So I love that, man. Well, you know, thank you for doing this. Uh, I feel like this is just sort of the beginning for you in a lot of ways. And I love that that's how things work in the music industry, that the beginning for you happens 20 years into a struggle. And you know, it just means that, like, now it's all, it's so many doors have opened up because you opened them up, not because they were just given to you. Yeah. And Oh, another Delaware songwriter you need to have one here. Oh. My cousin, Stara. Uh, she, her name is oh, Brittany. Stara, Smith. hell yeah. So she's from Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. She's my cousin. Cool. Tell so, her. yeah, so she's way bigger songwriter than I am. <laughs> tell her i say hi we've we've definitely talked about having her on so that would be amazing yeah, she's cool man uh worked her butt off i remember when she was in college and she was texting me talking about hey i'm thinking about you know doing the move to la i'm gonna yeah. do it and she worked her butt off she has her own thing she does so many people shot down for so many years and you know now she's one of the biggest writers in pop now man so in the world yeah exactly in the, in the world in the world bro not just not like in the world in the world uh look people surround themselves with that kind of like you were saying you know you want to be surrounded by positivity and uh and you you've you've done that you've built a positive team and you're putting out positive and strong music and you're winning because your talent and you're winning because your perseverance and it's it's fun to watch and congratulations Ah, oh, thanks, man. Yeah, I feel like what helped, I, I tell people all the time, surround yourself with people who are living the life you want to get to. Um, I, I've i moved to, I couldn't really afford to live in Brentwood, but I did it on purpose because I knew Brentwood is where successful songwriters live, were living and artists. And I became friends with so many of them working at the gym and, you know, NFL players and guys that have reached their goal because guys like that that are successful, man, they, they have success stories. You know, I didn't want to be in East Nashville. There were a bunch of other struggling songwriters and artists where, because the mentality and the morale is down, man, you got people, you know, hating on people. And then I don't know if it's going to work for you. I've been here X amount of years and da, 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 da. I'm like, that's not what I need to hear right now, bro. So I just tell people, man, sir, surround yourself with people that believe in you and, also that are achieving things that you want to get to, man. And that'll just rub off on you, you know, just the will to never quit. Cause if you wake up every day and you see success in your face, you know, you see people that have hurdled across obstacles that you're currently fighting, you know, that's more, more motivation to see the wins than people still struggling. You know, so that, that's what, that's what helped me a lot. Have you written with Mickey at all? No, but we actually have a song. On my so I got a project that comes out July 10th. It's a a collab project, and 
I got a song with Mickey, got a song with Nelly. Uh, I got a song as me, Darius Rucker, and Charlie Pride on the same song. Fuck yeah. Got a song with Tim McGraw, got one with Brad Paisley. And I got one that's like super random, but it's me, Rita Wilson, uh, Torin Wells, a Christian artist, and the Oak Ridge Boys. Crazy, that's weird. <laughs> yeah. I, I named it like Betty James after my dad and my grandma. And I wanted to have some of their favorite artists and my favorite artists. My grandma's favorite group of all time is Oak Ridge Boys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So rad. Love it. Cool. So now we're done with our interview. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 